With my clinical therapist, he told me that maybe being trans was like a step that you needed to, to take along your identity. And that just pissed me off. Because, like, for, on the one hand, gotta give him a little bit of credit because I, I was trying to explore my identity. And, and the fact that I was able to explore my identity like by being a woman, I, I, I don't want to discount that as a, as a valuable step in my development. But medical transition? Medical transition with unknown effects and, and potentially surgically altering my body? Get out of here. That's not, that's not a step that I need to take in order to understand who I am. That's a, I'm still not sure how much of the responsibility lies on me and my own mistakes, because certainly I made them, and on, on the therapist that I had. But that thing that he said just really got me. Welcome to the Unspeakable Podcast. I'm your host, Megan Daum. This is another episode about gender. As you may know, I've done several shows having to do with the enormous rise over the last several years of young people identifying as transgender and the controversies surrounding how and if they should be treated with medical intervention. I've had on a number of therapists, two of whom have facilitated the transition um, and at least one case continue to do so, um, but who are nonetheless concerned about a lack of emphasis on exploratory therapy as an assessment procedure. I've had on parents who are wrestling with this issue with their kids. I've had on journalists like Lisa Selen Davis, who has um, extraordinarily nuanced and rigorous insights as to why this issue has become radioactive to the point where most people are simply unwilling to talk about it. This week, I interview a young detransitioner, which is to say someone who identified as transgender at one point, but then decided that was not the right path and reversed course, stopped taking hormones and went back to his biological sex or went back to identifying as his biological sex. This guest is 23 years old currently and is speaking anonymously under the name of Austin. Austin and I have had several private conversations over the last six months or so, and he very much wanted to get his story out and talk about how he experienced gender dysphoria, what led to him believing he was transgender, and what it's been like to peel back from that identity and even go back and talk with some of the therapists who helped him transition. So even though I have vowed to lay off of this topic, uh, I decided to run this interview not only because Austin is remarkably eloquent um, in his thoughts, but also because his story contradicts some of the more common assumptions about the rise in trans identities among young people, namely that the increase is propelled by social media. Uh, that's certainly something I've said a lot. So while that may be true in a lot of cases, especially among a certain cohort, social media was not a factor in Austin's transition. Instead, he talks about something we haven't really covered on the show, and that is autogynephilia. That is a paraphilia which is very taboo among most trans activists, but uh, nonetheless plays a significant role in gender transition, um, uh, especially among biological males, or it has in the past. Um, he also talks about the role of pornography. So with that in mind, I should say that this conversation contains some graphic language about sexuality and other things and might not be suitable for everyone. 
But with that, here's my interview with Austin. Welcome, anonymous guest, to the Unspeakable Podcast. Thanks for having me on. We were trying to figure out what to call you, um, but rather than rather than turn this into a parlor game of what your what your preferred name would be in an alternate universe, uh, we'll just I will I will call you anonymous guest for now. Thank you. Um, Thank you. But uh, thanks for being here. So, as you know, I've done a number of interviews on the subject of gender identity, transgender identities, what is often called the gender critical space. One of the things I've been criticized for is not talking to enough actual trans people, although I have had on um, Buck Angel and also Aaron Kimberly. Uh, you are somebody who identifies, I guess, as a detransitioner. Is that fair to say? That's right. Okay. So why don't we just sort of start from the beginning, at least the beginning of um, your journey in terms of this, this particular issue. Um, where did this all start for you, questioning your gender? Uh, the the beginning is real far back. I questioning my gender came out of some tendencies that a lot of kids have, which is um, I was interested as a kid in what it was like to be other things, and a lot of times those questions took on like a like a very it, I w- I wouldn't even say sexual like a very sensory focused bent. Um, so like I would imagine imagine what it would be like to be a person with different body parts rearranged or what it would like to be of like vampire squid or I I think pretty common questions, questions for a kid to have. And I think that that normal creative process was affected by my discovery of porn at a young age. And you say young, how, how young do you mean? Like eight, like a lot of kids, I was interested in um, questions about the other gender. But I never felt comfortable discussing those things with, with my parents, and so I I think I turned to porn as a means of answering that. Were you talking about it with other kids your age? Oh hell no. Um, okay. I uh, it was a very private thing for me. I I don't quite know why, um, but I was very I, I guarded that information and discussion jealously. And how are you getting access to the pornography? Just regular going online? There weren't restrictions? Just regular going online, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, So, continuing, there were were a few reasons why I transitioned, basically. So, one of them was autogynophilia. Um, And I think that this resulted from this story that I've just told of, like, interest in being other things and and then porn. Because I used I used porn as even at that age as an escape from reality in the same way that other people I don't know binge drink or smoke too much weed and uh, I was obsessed with questions of like female pleasure so for example I would like search on the internet like what is a female orgasm like I was I was very focused. Uh, almost obsessively so on that question at around like 12 or 13. Okay. So I was going to ask you, this is prepubescence or were you like headed into puberty at this point? It's, it's difficult to establish a timeline. Um, the, I know that I found porn when I was eight. Um, I don't know when my explicitly sexual fantasies about being the other gender started. If I had to guess, I'd just say 11, but 
honestly, whatever. <laughs> That's, uh, it, it, it could be plus or minus a year or two. So, so autogynephilia was one of the reasons that I um, eventually transitioned, but that is by no means the whole story. Um, I was also interested in what it was like to be the other gender. I, th- I think <laughs> I was afraid of women, um, of, of girls my age when I was uh, in, in middle school. And when I would be the other, other gender, that was, I, I liked experimenting with that with them. Um, I think that part of it might have been that they would trust me more. I, th- I think that that was, that was part of it, that I could insinuate myself into these friend groups. We, we might get into this later, but I had a very unhealthy relationship with women for most of my life. And, and okay, but when you are you're talking about being in middle you're talking about being in middle school, are you identifying as trans at that point? Was this a category that people were familiar with? What what year was this also? Uh this was this was 2012. Uh trans was a thing that people were familiar with, but in in 7th grade it had not been introduced to me, by 8th grade it had. I played with the idea of of being trans. I I took on a different name. I talked about it with my friends. I also, um, <laughs> being trans also gave me an excuse to talk about myself because, you know, the, the women that I was talking with when I would, when I would bring that up, they'd, they'd say, you know, oh, how, you know, how interesting. Tell me more. And I would be only too happy to do so. That didn't work so well around, um, that didn't work so well around men. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd try to bring up being trans and, and usually the guys my age would be like, you know, they wouldn't be cold towards it, but they'd be like, yeah, that's cool. Anyway, what are we going to do now? And how did you come across the concept of being trans? Was it uh, through social media? Was it a particular uh, kind of web platform? There, no. Um, So unlike a lot of people who tell this kind of story, social media didn't play a big part in my transition. And I was off of it, pretty much. I, I I was a lurker on Tumblr. I would I would read posts, but they I wouldn't participate in the community, and I didn't know anybody in the community. And um, none of the things that I looked up on Tumblr were about being trans. Anyhow, they were all about like Doctor Who. Okay. So the the way that I found out about being trans was through people who did get it from social media, though. So a lot of my a lot of my friends at the time were on Tumblr or generally in that community. And a couple of them were considering transitioning from female to male. And so once that concept was introduced to me, that uh, the concept that I could be a woman spoke to me hard for, for a couple of reasons. First, because of the uh, autogynophilia stuff I mentioned earlier, but also because I was interested in experimenting with who I was. I, I had a very stressful home life as a kid, and I, I didn't get a lot of time to time or space to experiment with who I was. Um, so, so yeah, those, those are the two main reasons why I transitioned. Okay. And when you say you had friends who were transitioning, who were girls, are you talking about friends that you knew in real life, like friends from school actually? Yeah. I had no online friends. Okay. And was there, um, a sense that girls identifying this way was like a growing phenomenon or were people thinking of it as possibly a trend or was the feeling that, Oh, this has been around forever and only now are people feeling safe to come out. Definitely the second one. 
like well at, at least among at least among my friends that was the narrative i i was kind of i i kind of just adopted the narrative wholeheartedly um and didn't question it too much but um that was what it was and oh i should mention another large reason for my transition or at least a large reason that i stayed with it um it i was a troubled kid i had uh being me was not a very fun experience. And the idea that my mental problems were the result of something identifiable that had a fix, that, that spoke to me too. So I'd say the third reason that I was trans is, is because I saw it as a way out from, from my problems. Because, hey, you know, you're depressed and anxious. Well, that's, that's just dysphoria. That means you need to change your body a little more. And there were already reasons why I was changing my body. So it was kind of like a double whammy. You mean there were already reasons, meaning the autogynophilia? That's right. The autogynophilia and the, the, well, I'm not sure if how much of the experimenting with who I was was um, tied to my body. I think the experimenting with who I was was more um, talking about being trans around people. Um, I, I never really cared about how I presented myself to the broader public when, when I would walk around, um, around most people or around campus or around high school, I would just dress as androgynously and unnoticeably as possible. It was only around people that I really trusted that I would let the let the feminine side show. So at what point did you start to think about medically transitioning? What what ages are we talking about here? You're in middle you're in middle school. I keep saying medical school. I'm like middle you're in medical school. You're in middle school, big difference there. You're going into high school. Are you starting to think about taking hormones or puberty blockers? Like what's going on in your mind in terms of that? I don't know what my thoughts were on hormones or puberty blockers um before sophomore year of high school when I was when I was turning 16. I really don't know, so I'm just going to leave that question. I know that I did go on them eventually when I was 16. Or, sorry, that's when I started pushing for them really hard. Um, because what changed is I started spending a lot of time at my high school girlfriend's house, and they provided me with a space in which I felt comfortable exploring my identity. So I did. And um, also due to the fact that I was because sexual like solo sexual fantasy was a large component of me transitioning or or considering myself as a woman. I I, um, it's harder to say in my essays, I classify the set of behaviors that characterize my transition as, quote, being trans, unquote. and. The reason I put it in quotes is just because I don't want to lay claim to an identity that people legitimately have. I don't legitimately have that identity, and I never did. So at a loss here for how, in a spoken interview session, to find a noun phrase for the set of behaviors that characterize my transition. Because, I mean, what I just said, was that, that's a little wordy. No, I know what you're saying, because it's kind of like talking about, you know, people who identified as gay for a period of time, but then realized that they weren't gay. It's, it's easy to kind of conflate that with a quote unquote ex-gay, you know, we talk about the ex-gay movement and that has a lot of 
really negative connotations for good reason. Yeah. So you're and so by way of acknowledging that that trans identities exist and are legitimate, you are putting yourself in a different category as somebody who yeah thought thought they were trans. Is that is that accurate? Yeah. Did I yeah, I did that well. Okay. Okay. So, okay, but when you were you were living with your girlfriend, I mean, it's it's interesting you because one of the things that comes up in a lot of these discussions is this notion of a glitter family. And I don't know if that's um if that's a kind of derogatory term, but it it's come up. So like uh-huh. there will there will be this dynamic where a, a young person will have their own household or family, and maybe that family is not as encouraging as of the trans identity. And then they sort of find, you know, a, a neighbor or a family friend or, a, you know, the parents of a friend. And that family becomes um, very supportive of the trans identity. And um, this is so they kind of move into this other kind of network. Yeah. So is that what was going on here? Yeah, I, I'd say that is what was going on here. Um, I, uh, I don't think I want to assert glitter family as a um, I wouldn't say that glitter families have to be a bad thing. I think that the the connotation with with glitter families is that they're it, it feels like you know the the sirens from the Odyssey. You know they're trying to draw you in and <laughs> and like make you into something right. that you're not and, right. and somehow use you. And and I wouldn't say that that was what was happening here. My girlfriend's family they were not perfect people by any stretch of the imagination, but their their support of my identity and who I thought I was that that wasn't evil you know and I, I'd I'd really like to say that it's 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 more complicated that than my parents because my my mom told me that I wasn't trans I tried to tell her that I I thought I was trans and she told me no you're just confused and you know that it's kind of funny because now I know that she was right um but it's it's not as simple as oh, my, my parents knew what was best for me. And, and then there was this other family that I kind of got enmeshed with that allowed me to be a worse version of myself. It's not like that at all. It's yeah, no, it doesn't sound like that when, when you talk about it, Okay, I just wanted to, because that, that is a dynamic that uh, comes up in yeah. a lot of these discussions. You know, so. glitter, glitter family reminds me of the notion of the urban tribe. Are you familiar with that? I, I think so. I mean, I, I'm familiar with the concept. Oh, okay. It, 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 kind of reminds me of the the urban tribe and that like um you're a bunch of like because glitter family that typically that's not like another family in my case it was um glitter family is typically like oh here's some other young people your age that are willing to um right it's your 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 peer group yeah that yes actually good point thanks thank you for pointing that out but in in your case it was it was an actual family yeah parents no kind of unusual right so um and you know, with the relationship with your girlfriend, you know, I don't expect you to go into any details of your sex life, but were you functioning as a heterosexual couple effectively at one point? And, or was it just more fluid than that? Like what was, you're saying she was sort of encouraging you to transition. So what did that mean for her in terms of being your girlfriend? Uh, she considered herself bisexual at the beginning of our relationship. And towards the end of our relationship, she considered herself gay. And I'm I I'm not sure where she still stands on that, but I she referred to me as her girlfriend. Um, so we can we considered ourselves a gay couple. Okay, so when you say you started asking for um, 
hormone. I guess puberty blockers, it would be a little too late for, for that. But when you were, you started asking for cross-sex hormones, what did that mean? Who did you ask? Well, uh, clarification here, because it, it was not too late for, for puberty, puberty blockers. I wasn't done yet. Okay. I, I did go on puberty blockers a, a year after, well, I should tell the story of how I, how I got those first. So I appealed to my mom a second time and I was like, no, seriously, really, really got to do this. So she took me to a psychology appointment. I ended up seeing this psychologist for somewhere around a year. Uh, he had a pretty, uh, how would you say it? He had a pretty strict standard of care and whether or not that's a bad thing is something we might discuss later. And I got hormones a year after I started therapy with him. And then I got, oh, did I just say hormones? I don't know. Oh, well, I got, I got T blockers a year into um, having therapy sessions with him at 17. And then two years in at 18, I got, I got estrogen. And he determined that this was an appropriate course. Did he say to you, okay, you are, you are trans and this is how you should proceed? Uh, so I had a, I had a second therapist, uh, my, my therapist who gave me my diagnosis rather than my therapist who just was in clinical sessions with me. And my therapist who gave me the diagnosis, gave me an assessment and, uh, brought my parents, like the assessment consisted of like a written thing that I was going to fill out a set of questions that I had to answer for her and, um, a session with my parents. And eventually she gave me a something like 30 page long document or like a written report of her justification for why I was, for why I was trans. And I also received a diagnosis and I, I don't know where that is. I remember it was on like a piece of paper, like a diploma and and I don't know where that is. I wish I'd kept that. How did you feel when she gave that to you? Pretty good. Pretty good because I, there were reasons why I was trans um, or there were reasons why I believed I was trans. And there was a reason why, okay, to be, to be more precise, there was a reason why I was behaving. There, there was a reason why I was engaging in the behaviors that characterize my trans identity. And this diagnosis furthered all of those reasons. This diagnosis would allow me to get cross-sex hormones. It would, it also cemented the idea in me like, okay, this is, this is, this is legit, you know, like if, if somebody, I was, one of the reasons I was trans is because I was searching for a way out of my problems. And so to have a diagnosis, like, yes, this is actually the right way to solve your problems was like, oh, you know, good. How much did the autogonophilia factor into the diagnosis? What do you, what do you mean by that? I'm, well, I'm sure how much did you talk about your autogonophilic tendencies? And actually, also, before you answer that, maybe we should clarify what autogonophilia means. I mean, I think a lot of people understand it to be um, a biological male who is sexually aroused by the thought of himself as a woman but does it have dimensions that go beyond sexual context? Like, is it just, you know, you sort of love the idea of yourself just being a woman in the world or like getting your period or whatever it is, that kind of thing. Like how, what's, how does, uh, is, is it, is it more than just the sex act aspect? Sort of, sort of both. For me, it was, it was almost strictly sexual. Um, but I understand for other people, it, 
may not be. And and I can't speak to that. All I can say is that for me, autogynophilia was love of myself as a woman, sexually very focused on physical details. There there was some of, um, for example, my my girlfriend would like dress me up in a dress and I'd be like, oh, you know, cool. But I would never go out like that. Um, and at its root, that non-sexual behavior was sexual and interpreted sexually. So it, it was it was all pretty sexual for me. So during the assessment process, was it ever discussed that like, well, you know, maybe I have this proclivity. I don't know. I don't think that's a derogatory word. I'll just use it. I, I, I am autogynephilic. And is there a world in which that is a separate thing? from being trans? Like, is it possible someone could have just said, well, okay, this is like a fetish that you have. This is uh, something about you. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're trans. Was that ever floated? I don't believe so. No, it's, it's, it's honestly possible that it was. Um, but if it was, it did not make an impression on me and it was not, um, it was not presented as an alternative diagnosis. Okay. And did you understand autogynephilia to be like a really problematic term or concept at that point? Because this is a word that is absolutely anathema to a lot of trans activists. It's like considered hate speech in some corners. So yeah. were you aware of that? Uh, I I really don't know. Um, autogynephilia is not something I spend in my spent my time thinking about. Like you asking me what I thought about it and, and whether it came up is it feels like trying to remember my locker number in high school. Okay, so you start getting estrogen at 17 or 18? Yeah, somewhere around there. And and did your parents consent to that? Or did they have to even? I don't remember. Um, I think that they did. If, if they had the consent, they did. Uh, because they, they saw that this was the path that I was going down. And so they decided to at least support me in it even if they and thought it was wrong. And when I say they, by the way, I'm talking about my mom. Um, my dad just tried to distance himself in whatever way he could. Was, were they under the impression that if they did not proceed, uh, or if they did not let you proceed, you would be have a real risk of suicide? No. No, they didn't think that. Did that ever come up? Because that's one of the things that clinicians often talk about. It's you know believed that if kids are not facilitated quickly, that you know, statistically, they will be a real suicide risk. Those statistics aren't, they aren't true, actually, as we know. But were you aware of anything like that? Were you ever told or did you ever have the idea that if I don't do this, I might become suicidal later? No, I don't think so. I, knowing, just knowing who I was, um, and I have a few snippets of psychology conversation that I'm using to justify this assessment, I, I would never have committed suicide, and I knew that. I was a, I had a really troubled teenage years, and I considered it. But I know now, and and I think I knew then that that never would have happened. So so no. And if it okay. came up in if it came up in therapy sessions, I I said something of the same thing, like yeah, it sucks, but no, that would never happen. Okay. So what started happening when you took the estrogen? How long did it take to kick in? How did you feel? Oh, I have body? I have no idea because um well, well I have no idea about like timeline of physical effects just simply because that was 
so long ago and it happened so gradually. But also, I, I have no idea what the mental changes were because I was, you know, I had all, ex- ex- I had all these expectations about how my mental processes were going to change. Um, that, that was part of interest of being, in a, being a woman, too. Like, I was fascinated by the idea that women perceive temperature differently. And I'd heard reports of um, people experience that, experiencing that difference when they transitioned. But What do you mean? Like, temperature, like how cold it is outside kind of thing? Well, like, temperature is associated with a perception, right? Kind of like when, when people look at the world, they, like, visually, they, like, see it differently. I, I kind of imagine it as there's different styles of painting. And whenever somebody looks at the world, they see the world through a different style of painting. Um, so there's cold does not feel the same way to everyone. And, and neither does hot and neither does red, blue or green. Um, uh, when I think when everyone was in elementary or middle school, they um, would have small conversations with their friends like, Hey, you know, what if your red isn't my red? Would there be any way of telling? And the answer is no. Wow, you went to a pretty, uh, pretty sophisticated <laughs> elementary school. I don't, I don't remember having these conversations. Yeah. But how is this gendered? I mean, I can understand. I mean, there's all sorts of kind of cognitive variations, and there's things like synesthesia and this kind of thing. But how did you perceive this as being gendered? How, what do you mean? How did I perceive it as being? Well, gendered? like you think that so you know, red doesn't red does not mean the same thing to everybody. But how is it specific to gender? Like you think that women would see colors you know, on average, a different way than men on average? Oh, yeah. So, so for example, it is understood that women have different visual perception than men do. Um, women are more pattern-focused. Um, and <laughs> one of the... I'm not sure how much I was bullshitting myself here, um, but when, when I was on estrogen fonts look different to me. I like, you know, when I was before then, I, I would read all these fonts and I would be like, why are there so many different fonts that look exactly the same? <laughs> and then I would read fonts with, with estrogen and I'd be like, wow, you know, okay, I, I sort of get it now. They all have different feelings. That was very, very interesting. Wow. To me. Okay. I mean, I'm just, I, I'm, I don't, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking, well, what about all the male graphic artists and you know yeah artists and they can see all the different fonts i never thought of this as being gendered i mean i know that there are brain studies that show that you know women on balance have a different sort of you know for instance men are better at moving shapes around rotating objects in space right that that kind of thing and it's certainly not everybody and there's all that's it's you know there's a long tail there but okay so but you were aware of yourself as you started to take the estrogen that you were seeing sort of your, your visual experience was different. It is. It's possible that my visual experience was different, but then also, as I said, it's possible that I was just bullshitting myself because, um, I, I wanted to see it. And so I did see it. Right. Okay. Okay. So this is interesting. All right. So, so what else, what, what's another example of something that was different? Uh, are you talking like perceptions or or physical? Either. Okay. Um, well, I grew breasts. Still have them. Kind of weird. Um, that doesn't really bother me. Um, my mom has asked me to 
my mom has been like, you know, you should you should probably get that removed. It's not that expensive. And I'm just so resistant to that idea. Like, I do not experience any autogynephilic attachment towards my breast. So that that's not it. But they're like, they're like part of me now. And, and, um, yeah, I want to get back to that later. I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. Okay, sorry, so I, I wanna, so are I really you having like breasts. less body hair? Are you, so you're, you're growing breasts. Do they look like a woman's breasts or is it like sort of an in-between thing? What is, what, what they, else happens? They look like a, they look like if a 13 year old girl was a super buff athlete. Um, that's what my breast breasts look like. Okay. So like broad shoulders, and, you know. And was this appealing to you? Did you like that look? Uh, <laughs> good, good question. Um, I think that much like the, much like the perceptions, I made my breasts out to be more than they were. And what I mean by that is like, you know, I wanted to be happy because these were there. And so I would just sort of make myself feel happy. Like be like, oh, you know, cool. I was, I think I was bullshitting myself as to the significance of my new friends. Okay. And it's interesting because you couldn't have made yourself be happy the way you were before. That mechanism was not available to you. What, what do you mean by that? Accepting yourself the way you were before. Oh, uh, yeah, good. Like just kind of living with it. Well, this is the way I am. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know. Oh, are you I'm drawing it? With it. You weren't doing that before the transition. That's what I'm saying. I, so are you drawing a contrast between before and during the transition or before Well, I'm now? just saying, I mean, this is a fairly banal point. And it's, I'm, uh, so you're saying that, you know, you started to develop in this way and you were able to say, well, this is how I am. I'm going to make myself you know, be, be happy with it. I'm going to get to be content with this. Yeah. And that is a sort of, you were not able to do that in your earlier iteration. I mean, most people aren't, it's like, you know, people say, well, why don't you just accept yourself the way you are? Well, okay. a lot of people have a hard time with that, but you were accepting yourself the way you were as you were transitioning. Oh no. Even if it wasn't necessarily ideal. No, 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 no. That's, that's not right at all. Um, okay. Okay. Making yourself feel happy is not good. That's, that's, <laughs> that's not good because you don't actually make yourself feel happy. That's not what's happening. You're just telling yourself that you feel happy. Okay, so this is not self-acceptance. This is something else. No, this is like the opposite of self-acceptance. This is uh, this is I am trying to convince myself that I am more than I am so that I can feel good about myself. I mean, it sounds like you were going to a pretty progressive school. Are, are you in public school? That's right. Okay, so was this like a big deal? Were you getting people, um, were you getting like negative responses from people? Were you getting positive responses? What was it like? No one gave a shit. (laughs) No one, no one cared. Like, I I didn't get any positive or negative responses from anybody. The the full extent of it would be like, wow, you know, that's cool. Anyway. Did that disappoint you? Yeah, it did. It did. Um, I think it... Uh, I, I think I would have preferred to get negative responses to getting no response at all, because then I would be able to carry out some sort of holy war. Uh, but I was never given that opportunity. Okay. And so at some point you graduate from high school, yep. you go to college. Yeah, that's right. Uh, okay. So then what happened when you got to college? Uh, are you passing by the way? Are, how, no. what, are, what are you looking like at this point? Well, okay. I don't know. Um, I dressed really androgynously and a lot of people would tell me that 
they thought I was female. I think I, I think for a lot of people, I passed until I opened my mouth because I never, never cared about altering my voice. In fact, I was doing so felt very wrong to me. Um, so I, I played with the idea. And I think I might have done a little bit with myself, but any time that I would attempt to use this voice with other people, I would feel two inches tall. I'm curious, actually, what does change the voice when you're going male to female? Because would estrogen in and of itself wouldn't? Yeah, no, it's it's just straight higher, up personal it? effort. That's okay. it. Um, there that are... sounds hard. Yeah, it is. It's hard to maintain. If you happen to have watched the uh, Elizabeth Holmes documentary, no, uh, the in, uh, the inventor. Oh yeah, it's, she's um, she it's she was a head of a, he, bi, she's a biotech scammer, and one of the things that she did. With oh her, oh, Theranos. Spoke in a really Theranos. low voice. Theranos. Yeah. Uh huh. And she spoke in this really low voice to, you know, convey more authority as a woman. And every every woman I know who watched it said, "My God, how could she maintain that for years and years and years? It's it's astonishing. I mean, it's impressive." Mm-hmm. Uh, but the the amount of uh, discipline that would and focus that would take. Okay, so you're not really passing, or you're opening your mouth, but it sounds like you don't really care. So, like, no, how no. comfortable with yourself would you say you were at this point? Oh, uh, there's many different dimensions of comfortable with myself, and it seems like the axis you're um, talking about this along is um, comfortable with myself, like physically in public. Is that is that it? Yeah. Okay, you can start there. Yeah. Uh, oh man, that's a good question. <sighs> I mean, were you having friends? Were you making friends? Like, did you just, did you feel like you were just another oh, student? Comfortable or were you with my, around? not necessarily comfortable with my body. Just comfortable with myself. Okay. okay. That's a question. But I mean, were you having a good, like, how did it feel to be in college? Did you feel like, oh, I'm in the right place. I'm, I, I made the right choice. I'm doing the right thing. My life is moving forward. Like sort of, sort of, how did you just kind of feel overall about your existence? Oh man. Um, there's a difference between how I thought I felt and how I was actually doing. We're going to pause here for a short message from me. Are you appreciating this conversation and wishing there were more like it out there? Well, there are lots more right here, almost 70 of them by now. I do this show every week and I pretty much do it all by myself. That is why, as much as I'm loath to ask for help, people who know me know this, I am offering this gentle reminder that if you value honest, thoughtful, nuanced conversations with all kinds of people, novelists, scientists, philosophers, comedians, journalists, sometimes even just regular folks with something interesting to say, I hope you'll consider supporting the show in any way you can. One way to do this is by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable. You can join for as little as $5 a month. That gives you early and ad-free access to the show or for as much as $100 a month. And yes, people have done that. There are lots of perks at every level, including if you join at the $10 a month tier or higher, the chance to join our bi-weekly hangout where we, and that includes me, get together on Zoom to talk about a recent specific episode of the show. Joining at that level also gets you discounts on your first purchase of official Unspeakable Podcast Nuanced AF merchandise. If Patreon is not your thing, you can also make a one-time donation in any amount by going to the podcast webpage at theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donation button. 
This podcast is a one-woman enterprise. I'm not affiliated with any institution, media company, secret investment cabal, or anything like that. I do it because I love it. And if you love it, or even like it, I hope you'll consider supporting it in any way that makes sense for you. Leaving a positive rating or review wherever you get your podcasts is a big help, actually. And telling people about the podcast, sharing it with friends, just spreading the word actually means more to me than anything. So thank you for listening to the show, for making the unspeakable worth speaking. And with that, back to the interview. Before we return to the interview with Austin, I should say that we covered more ground here than I could include in the episode. So I'm going to skip ahead a little. All you need to know is that he had a series of experiences that brought him in closer touch to what he saw as his true self. And this is what led to his decision to transition. You're going to hear him refer to a series of essays he wrote about this process, and I'll direct you to those at the end of the conversation. In any case, we're going to pick up at the point where he talked about the physical process of detransitioning. So what's the first step toward letting it go? just in practical terms. Taking off your estrogen patch. What was that like? My fat redistributed back to normal. And several years later, I am maybe growing a beard. Maybe. We'll see. (laughs) I might just have to be clean shaven the rest of my life. Did you have a lot of facial hair before you started the... No, no. Well, I guess you you were only 16 or 17. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's why um, puberty blockers wasn't the fact that I did them late wasn't that big of a deal because easily the I was already kind of a skinny androgynous looking kid and so the fact that I didn't have a beard was like you know what does it matter if I do this at 16 Had you been considering getting surgery I was yeah in fact I had scheduled an appointment an appointment being surgery This would have You had surgery scheduled Yeah I I like had bottom surgery scheduled. That's correct. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I had been I had been seeing an electrolysist. Is that how you say that word? Well I've been yes, yeah. I'd been seeing one of those for like months. Like months. Like I would I would go I would usually get pretty high beforehand because it hurt. Yeah, no kidding. So I'd get high and I'd take an Uber over there. And then I'd get that done. And this happened like once every one or two weeks. So like I was I was serious about that. Like I was I was putting in time. And then the the desire to have female sexual parts was purely 100% sexual. It had nothing to do with any sort of oh this is a true expression of who I am. No, it was about like sexual pleasure and fantasy. So I'm very glad that I didn't do that. And and disclaimer by the way. Like some people accept that the only reason that they they want to get bottom surgery is so that they can like have a the sex life that they want. And I'm I'm not saying that that that's like wrong. You you do you. But I didn't know what I was doing. My understanding is that uh, at a certain point you went back and had some conversations with the therapist who had um helped facilitate your transition, the the clinician yeah. that wrote the long long letter. Yeah, let's call her my diagnosis. Okay, your diagnosing therapist. So what were your conversations with her like and how long after you began to detransition did you um, confront or 
approach uh, this therapist? Well, I think there was one confrontation and then there was one approach. Um, so very, very shortly after I detransitioned, I became disillusioned with the entire process that had led me to make the choices that I had. And that includes the medical community and it includes the, the gender identity movement. Um, I'm not going to give my own opinions on the gender identity movement um, or say anything about the broader world just because that's, that's not the kind of questions I feel qualified to answer. But with my, with my personal therapist, I was pissed off because, because, because I don't know, they, they, they were adults. You know, I was participating in this system as a minor, and not just as a minor, as a patient who didn't, I didn't know what I was doing. All I knew was that I was miserable, I wanted it to stop, and I kind of had weird fantasies about, about being a woman. That's, that's what I knew. Only that last part I really wasn't able to phrase, because in phrasing it, it might have led me to some territory that I, that I didn't want to bring up in therapy. Anyway, so I, with my diagnosing therapist, so, so after, I, after I began my detransition, I, I reached out to both of them, and in many more words, I was like, what the hell? Um, I, I was much more polite about it than that. But um, with my with my clinical therapist, he told me he told me um, that maybe being trans was like a step that you needed to to take along your identity, and that just pissed me off because, like, for on the one hand, got to give him a little bit of credit because I I was trying to explore my identity, and and the fact that I was able to explore my identity. Like by being a woman, I I I don't want to discount that as a as a valuable step in my development. But medical transition, medical transition with unknown effects and and potentially surgically altering my body, get out of here. That's not that's not a step that I need to take in order to understand who I am. That's a that's bad. Like I'm still not sure how much of the responsibility lies on me and my own mistakes because certainly I made them and on on the therapist that I had but that thing that he said just really got me but then I then I confronted my diagnosing therapist um and I I don't actually remember where that conversation went um I think I was veiling my irritation none too well and and a couple years later I talked to her again and she said that she didn't notice it the first time because the first time our conversation didn't go anywhere the second time I, I reached out to her, it was, it was different. And I had, a, I had a better understanding of what had happened to me. And What did you understand differently? This, the, this, the whole story that I've just told, I kind of had like a proto version of that in mind. I, I'm not sure exactly how much I understood at the time, but I understood a whole lot more than when I initially detransitioned. And my model of what happened when I detransitioned was just something like, I thought I was trans, I wasn't, what the hell? That's probably all I had. And after thinking on it for a good long while, like two years, I was able to approach her and she, she, I'm not sure, I'm not sure how much I should speak for her. Um, She was open to the idea that, at least open to the idea that what, what had happened to me was a mistake and she agreed with that. So we, the fact that we both saw that it was it was much easier for us to have a conversation because 
with my clinical therapist, he didn't even admit that a mistake had been made and, and kind of a non-starter for me. Did she take any responsibility for the mistake? I don't remember. And I, I am, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure how I would feel about it if she, if she did or didn't. I would, I would certainly, I think that clinicians of all stripes can do better. I'm not going to give my full opinion on that, but something that I feel comfortable saying is that alternative, alternative diagnoses or even just alternative states of being to being trans must be at least introduced to the patient. Like, it must be at least introduced the idea that, oh, perhaps you're, perhaps you're autogynophilic or perhaps you're using this to explore your identity and this isn't like an unassailable part of who you are. If you had not been able to transition, what do you think would have happened to you? How would your life have gone? If I was not able to transition and I decided that I wasn't able to transition and like hard stop, I would have completely forgotten about it. I guarantee you I would have completely forgotten about it because it was I was only thinking about it as a means to an end. Um, I saw it as a potential solution to some problems that I had. There was no deep feeling within me that like, oh, my, like my body is wrong and, and I feel as though I'm in the wrong body and in order to, to better express myself, I need this new body. There was none of that. If I wasn't able to transition, I would have just forgotten about it. Wow. So you say that you have breasts now and you say that doesn't bother you too much. Tell me more about that. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's just uh, like when I, if I wasn't in this interview and I just read that as a question asked in an interview, like that would just be an objectively hilarious question. Well, you know, out of context. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, very well, but I think you know what I'm asking. Uh, no, I know. I know exactly what you're asking. Um, yeah. Uh, it, I never think about it. I, that's probably the, the cleanest way of describing how I feel about my breast. I, I never think about it. They're small enough that I don't even wear sports bras. I, I run a lot and that they don't cause any problems there. I, okay. I think that they are like visible. I think that people do notice. I remember I was running one time and, and this was only a little bit ago. So I had been detransitioning for a while and somebody mistook my gender, even though all of my, you know, hairy arms and masculine legs were visible and somebody still mistook me. Uh, and so I, I don't know how visible they are and I super don't care. Um, like if, if somebody sees me and they notice that I have these weird little breast things, I, I don't care. What difference does it make? Why is that? Is that because it's sort of like a little, a little, you know, keepsake of your journey? No, that's not it. I, I, they have, I, I, I want to say that they have very little significance to me. And then the thought of like surgically removing them just, just grates me. Um, that feels all wrong. Um, I don't know. Yeah. It's, I'm not sure how to resolve the tension between those two things. Is there anything you want to be sure to uh, to say before we wrap things up? Well, we're, we're, are we doing this again? We could always do it again, but for now, I, I want to make sure that we, we cover all the bases. So yeah, um, okay, cover all the bases. For now, for, for now, is there anything that like if we if we stopped talking now, we're going to hang up and you're going to say, oh, I wish I'd been able to say this or that? Yeah, let me let me just go through my essays. Uh, so I have a um, or I don't have it at the time of this podcast, but I will have an I will have a website. 
give me a second because I'm about to give the okay. name of this website, but we I might. So, I mean, if you want it, depending on when this posts, you might have the, do you want it? Cause you have referred to the essays several times. So do you want to explain to us what you mean by that? Ah, cool. So I just checked on GitHub, um, which is where I'm going to be hosting this website. And there is no user named Dtrans essays. Um, so the, <laughs> okay. the URL of the website will be um, Dtrans essays, all one word, um, dot GitHub dot IO. Okay. And, and the essays are, are describing your experience. Yeah. Um, there's what we, I, what we <laughs> calling them essays feels really pretentious. I'd like just, I'd just like to come nah, right out there and say that because some of them are only like a paragraph. Some of them are longer, but I just couldn't come up with a better word than essays. And I know like, I think that's, you know, an essay really, you know, it comes from, it means to try. It comes from Montaigne, it, it right? Does. It's just to try. It does. And then I have friends in the political science major who were writing like 20 page essays on something. And so to call my little unresearched, no bibliography shit as, as an essay feels wrong, but whatever, that's what they are. So there's, okay. And, and the website is pretty self-explanatory. It is just a list of questions and some of them are kind of meta and pertain to what questions I won't and won't answer, will and won't answer and why I created the website and why I'm doing this at all. And, um, and then some of them are longer questions like, uh, what, why do you keep saying being trans in quotes like that? And, and what changed when you started spending weekends at your high school girlfriend's house? And um, are there any situations in which you would have forgotten and moved on from the idea of medical transition? Questions like that. Um, I'm a better writer than I am a speaker. So um, if you're interested in hearing more, I would encourage you to check out these essays for as long as your interest holds and no, and no longer. Okay. Well, I think you're a pretty good speaker. I got to say you're uh, you, you really, you're very precise in your, in your uh, descriptions and in, in your insights. So, um, well, that's, really that's, that's great to hear from, from somebody outside my own head, inside my own head. I like, it's like if you see a factory and it just produces this amazing shoe and, you know, wonderful shoe. And then you go into the factory and it's just a goddamn disaster, like OSHA it's, violations uh, yeah. everywhere. And you think you go in, inside anybody's head is, uh, you know, not, not necessarily terrain. One must travel. There's a reason it's inside the head. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. It's contained in all of us. It kind of reminds well, me of the people who, um, you know, people who talk too much about themselves, it's like they're showing you their, their crappy factory and you're like, no, no, I, I really didn't want to know that. Just just the shoe, thanks. You're right. You're, you're polluting. Yes, you're polluting the streams <laughs> that surround you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much and uh, good luck with everything going forward. All right. I will, I will put up that website now. That was my interview with a 23-year-old going by the name of Austin discussing his gender transition, followed by his gender detransition. Those essays he talks about can be found at dtransqna.github.io. That's dtransq, and then the letter N-A, dot github.io. Um, I would also say that if this subject is one that interests you, I highly recommend a podcast called Gender A Wider Lens, which is hosted by Sasha Ayed and Stella O'Malley, um, both of whom are therapists who've worked with gender questioning youth. They have done some incredible interviews recently with researchers and clinicians who've been studying gender dysphoria and working with transitioners for decades real legends in the field. These conversations are 
the embodiment of nuance, in my opinion. And I would encourage you to check them out if you haven't heard them already. Uh, Sasha Ayad was an early guest on this show, um, but uh, they're not paying me to say this or anything. Uh, They did not ask me to uh, recommend the podcast, um, but I'm doing so nonetheless. I just think it's really excellent. So that's Gender A Wider Lens. This podcast is the unspeakable podcast. You've heard me say it before. I'll say it again. Direct support from listeners is the name of the game here. You can support the show by joining the Patreon community at patreon.com slash the unspeakable and joining at any number of levels. If you join at the $10 a month level or higher, you get lots of perks, including the ability to join our bi-weekly hangouts on Sunday evenings on Zoom, where we get together and talk about a recent episode of the podcast. If Patreon is not your thing, you can make a one-time donation in any amount by going to theunspeakablepodcast.com and clicking the donate button. I'll be back next week with another super nuanced guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.